0: I was 23, you know, it was my first baby. I was induced, I was fat, I was queer, I was a lot of high risk flags. And so to have no say really threw me. I felt so out of control and just not involved. I felt like an observer rather than the active participant. And I did everything that I could think of to change that the second time around. And that included having a doula. Six months after Emma's birth, I was just like, yeah. If I can do that for other people, what my doula did for me, then why am I still sitting here? Why aren't I off doing that? Because that's incredible. A lot of people have these images of, you know, long hair and toe rings and floaty skirts. And we all must have pain-free births and we must have, you know, all of this. And all the doulas that I've met have just been the opposite of that. The doula is somebody who walks alongside you. We're not there to guide you and to tell you what you should do. It's not because we're magical, mystical human beings that have this power within us, but all we provide is that person to walk beside you and say, you can change your mind if you want to. It is your choice, your body, your baby, your birth. And to have someone remind you of that in a system that has all but forgotten it, to hand a bit of that control and choice back to people can be very powerful.
1: Having a baby is meant to be the most joyful time of your life. But for many mums and dads, it can be the hardest and at times the darkest of places. Welcome to Blue Mum Days, the podcast for anyone struggling with parenting. Today's guest is AJ Silver. AJ is the founder of the Queer Birth Club. They are a doula, breastfeeding counselor, baby wearing consultant, and soon to be published author and educator. They live in Essex with their spouse, two children and dog, Princess Leia. You can reach them on hello at thequeerbirthclub.co.uk and follow them on socials at thequeerbirthclub. Hi AJ, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Lovely,
0: thanks so much for having me. I love how every intro of me always includes my dog. Because
1: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I put it on every form. I'm like, don't forget my dog. <laughs> you know, these things are important. They're family, you know. <laughs> what type of uh, dog is Princess Leia?
0: A uh, springish spaniel um so we we didn't really know what kind of dog or whatever we wanted I had a border collie growing up Trixie um who was like the best dog ever so for me like a dog is like that sort of size you know running around like an absolute uh, just a out of hell you know and just living for the joy of life and so when um a friend of a friend of a friend said oh you've had dog, working dogs before and I said well I had a border collie and they said well I've got a friend of a friend who's got a a Springer Spaniel they're four months old and they're going to take them to Dogs Trust on Friday if they don't find anywhere to take them and so I just went I took the keys and I went and Adam my spouse was like don't come back with a dog and obviously I came back with a dog um, because she was just so wonderful so yeah we've had her since she was four months old and she's going to be four in May so and I'm just everyone's like, yeah, you've got two kids, you've published, or blah, blah, blah. Don't, don't, I want to talk about my dog, okay? That's what I want yeah, to talk
1: about. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I want to talk about my dog. How did she get on with the kids? Oh, love it. Like Emma was my youngest, who's six now, six and a half. Um, So she was a bit nervous to start with, but she'd never really been around dogs. Um, And Izzy loves all animals. um, And they're nine now and they love any animal, all animals, um, but with a strong preference for sharks and dogs. Um, So yeah, they've been best since the day they came home But emma took a bit longer but she she got there eventually and now she wouldn't be without her she says come and sit with me while i'm watching this on the telly and lay my legs yeah. are cold come and sit on my lap and all of this <laughs> so it's all it's all works out in the end
1: <laughs> i i literally feel the cold all the time so having my mm. siamese cat on my lap it's brilliant it's like a hot
0: water bottle. <laughs> yeah well that's what my dad used to say rather than tog ratings on duvets they should have dogs so how cold is the night how many dogs do you need in the cave I with you tonight that. or in the bed with you so it's like a two he used to say if it was frost on the ground it's a two-dog night and uh, <laughs> yeah so I think that uh, it's valid. It's totally valid. And layers like um, a pedigree, uh, uh, English Springer Spaniel. Um, not that we obviously give a shit about pedigree <laughs> yeah. status, but that means that she's got that long coat and it's so soft and fluffy. So actually, if your feet are cold, the doggo tummy, as long as it's consenting with the doggo, is one of my favourite places to warm up cold feet for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, def- <laughs> definitely. Well, Brandy, I've had to sort of uh, make excuses for Brandy, our-, our cat in the past where... He's woken up and started shouting because Siamese cats are really, really loud. Are they? He and his brother were rescues and uh, Whiskey is, is unfortunately no longer with us, but Brandy makes up for it in uh, more, than, <laughs> more ways than one.
0: Filling, f- filling the audio vo- uh, void there.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. So today he's asleep in his basket. So hopefully he will remain asleep th- for the duration Um, but I do have the council doing sort of roadworks opposite which they just turned up this morning so uh, apologies to any listeners if there's any background noise (laughs) it'll either be Brandy or the council so this is this is life in the uh, pandemic this is it anyway we we must talk about your flapjacks before the end of the the show yeah but let's get down to business I think first of all, it'd be really helpful to know what a doula is, because for some people listening now, they, they might have heard of the term, but not know what actually a doula is or does.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really common thing for people who may have heard about doulas. In particularly, if you've seen doulas, like your only uh, uh, way of meeting a doula or seeing what a doula is like is 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 entertainment we're not always represented in the best way in entertainment we were re-watching Frasier recently um because you know pandemic you've got to find all these things to watch right so we were re-watching Frasier and I missed it obviously first time around because I was younger and anytime I've seen that episode before training as a doula it didn't occur to me but I really liked that representation because it was it was like a pigeonhole exactly the opposite of what most doulas I've met are like um, you know and a lot of people have these images of um you know long hair and toe rings and floaty skirts and we all must have pain free births and we must have you know all of this and it's <laughs> yeah just realistically all like all the tulips that I've met have just been the opposite of that but it is a shame that a lot of the representation that we get is either stories of you know like a doula acted inappropriately or you know went above their station and was no longer acting as a doula or was trying to pressurize clients into any birth choices and that's the exact opposite of what a doula is a doula is somebody who walks alongside you we're not there to guide you and to tell you what you should do or what you should consider or what you shouldn't do or choose or be or anything like that we are someone to sit with you and we are only responsible to you so with a lot of obviously choices in the birth system that you may experience pressures from obstetricians or midwives in your birth choices where you should give birth or anything like that Um, and that can feel overwhelming for some people and they just want time and space to sit down talk it through with someone who has got A degree of experience in being in hospital settings or home birth settings and to say what is it actually like because again home birth is is not represented in the media very well either um and so they may want people to say actually what is it really like and you can say okay well this is my experience I've had my own births I've also had the births that I've supported professionally as a doula what do you want to do um so it's less wishy-washy Uh, you know and more you tell me what do you want I'm here I can point out interesting things along the way like a book that I read on that subject I've got a copy would you like to borrow it or how do you feel about that what what is your gut telling you someone there as a a way marker really to remind you um, of what your goals were um, but to follow you without any Uh, any necessary criteria i I follow people to a birthing center to to a cesarean to to a home birth whatever they want in between that's none of my business my business is making sure that parents feel heard and listened to Mm. and supported regardless of what that looks like for them
1: i think that advocacy is so important because so many parents that i've spoken to in, in the process of this podcast haven't felt heard or Mm. listened to or consulted in terms of their birth and that can actually be a very traumatic thing for some people.
0: Totally I mean there it's already so much in terms of conception pregnancy or new parenthood that's unknown um, particularly for first-time parents but obviously for second and more time parents as well that having somebody who you know I can ask this question And not be given a, what you should do is X, Y, Z, which is unfortunately what happens in the majority of cases um, on times when you ask anybody else in, in, in this world, you know, in the birth world of what you should do or you shouldn't do. And so for somebody to have anyone you can pick up the phone to and say, I'm not asking for your opinion, but this is what I'm being told I have to do or I should do can we talk about it because I don't know how I feel and of course you can that's something that is missing for a lot of people and has you know we know the statistics of improvement of birth outcomes for people who have doulas you know Um, you're less likely to have a cesarean birth um, you're more likely to um, have like a shorter labor with less interventions Um, and it's not because we're magical mystical human beings that have this power within us but all we provide is that person to walk beside you with and say, you can change your mind if you want to. You you know, you this is a choice that are asking you, do you want to do X or Z or Y? You can do whatever you like here it is your choice, your body, your baby, your birth. And to have someone remind you of that in a system that has all but forgotten it in a in a in a lot of instances. Obviously not not all professionals are like that, but I think is a very valuable thing that that enables parents to feel heard and in control. And for a lot of parents it's A time of concern because they feel so out of control um and or they feel that they're not in control of what will happen next or what could happen and so to hand a bit of that control and choice back to people can be very powerful yes
1: Mm. i really wish that i hadn't do that (laughs) at my birth i just yeah it's it's all of those things how are you regarded by sort of medical teams then are they understanding of your role or can it be a bit difficult sometimes I think
0: out of all the people that I've supported at home at hospitals in operating theatres I've only ever had one um, you know midwife who wasn't quite sure about what my role was um, and asked a lot of questions which is fine obviously ask all the questions you like maybe not right now because (laughs) this person's giving birth and I you know they're in transition so should we shut up um but you know I don't mind people having reservations because there are unfortunately there are doulas who aren't doulaing in the true sense of the word you know they are imposing their um you know what they think the client should do or what they would do in their shoes which obviously that's not doulahood. um but the the overwhelming thing I want any healthcare professional who's nervous about working with doula's to know is that we're not here to replace you. We're not a, a secondary midwife. Of course, I'm not a medical professional in any way shape or form and i would never try to be i am another member of this team of all of us together there's one more person in the room that the person giving birth has has asked for me to be here because they feel i bring something for them whether that's rooting or uh, another pair of eyes or uh, somebody to remind them in transition that this we talked about this you knew that this was going to happen and this is the moment and it's here and it's lovely and it's now and you're safe or whatever it is we're not here to take over or to take anyone else's role we are filling a completely separate need that that client has and it's not because we don't think that you can give that care it's that they themselves have chosen to have me there Um, and so again all their choices should be respected but as I say more often than not you get a yes you've got a doula and people are really excited to work with you because we're getting more common definitely um but it's not every day and a lot of midwives love it because there is another person there to help protect that space for that family and they are overjoyed that they've got people in their corner um but as I say out of all of them and I've been a doula for like five years now um it's only been one time where I haven't felt wanted or welcomed but I knew I was wanted or welcomed by the client so that was all that I had to focus on.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so for your own births, did you did you have a doula yourself?
0: I did for my second, for my first uh, Izzy again who's who's just turned 9. Uh I didn't have a doula and I was uh I gestational diabetes, I was induced, I was fat, I was queer, I was a lot of, you know, high risk flags and so to have no say is what I felt really through me in my in my own decision so when it came that I was pregnant with my second child I knew I didn't want the same or similar experience again I wanted more control I wanted more body autonomy I wanted to be able to say who could even be in the room or not um, which I felt I couldn't even ask for when I was in my first pregnancy so yes I did have a doula and she was marvelous she was wonderful we had our home water birth exactly as I wanted it with nobody touching me and nobody touched emma for about an hour and a half i think as well which was another thing because when i had izzy you know i had uh, an epidural and they they took her and i didn't see her for like half an hour and i just that was the longest half an hour of my life and it wasn't even oh because goodness. she was poorly because her aspires was high um it was just because I needed so much intervention at that stage because I had the sliding scale I had the the drip in and I had you know I had fluids going in and I was had monitors on my belly and I had all the and Izzy had a monitor on them and there was so much wires and I just said no I'm not going to do that again I really didn't enjoy that um it really messed up my belief in my body um and like my chest feeding journey from there was compromised because I felt with my body needed this much help to get the baby out then does my body know well enough to make the milk like if it's if it's broken enough that it can't birth which is how I was made to feel um then that surely means that the rest of that whole new parent thing isn't going to work either um and I appreciate that not everybody will go down that thought process but that's The full process I went down, I was 23, you know, it was my first baby. I was the youngest in my generation. I'd never even seen a baby uh, being breast or chest fed before in real life, obviously on screen and stuff, limited uh, representation in that way. But I felt so out of control and just not involved. I felt like an observer to the whole process rather than the active participant. And I did everything that I could think of to change that the second time around. And that included having a doula. And then once, about six months after Emma's birth, I was just like, yeah, if I can do that for other people, what my doula did for me, then why am I still sitting here? Why aren't I off doing that? Because that's incredible.
1: Yeah, well, what a gift you, you can give to these people. And it's, it's not just a positive experience, it's also negating incredible sort of negative effects that traumatic births, mm. you know, whether there's huge intervention, or whether it's just the person feeling like an absolute passenger in their own experience, it's such an important role. And, you know, it's one that I think should, there should be more understanding of, of what's available and what a dealer can do for you. My God, yeah, if I'd had one, I would have... Had a much happier experience. Yeah, and it's
0: obviously, it's not guaranteed. We're not magic, magical, mystical unicorns that fix everything instantly. Um, And there are obviously a variety of different doulas that work in a variety of different ways because that's what's authentic to them. A lot of new doulas try to emulate, you know, their favourite doulas, you know, and they may come down slightly differently in in lots of instances like i'm definitely one i'll make you a lemon and honey no problem and i'll i'll get you ginger and your garlic and we'll do all of those things but if you're poorly and you want antibiotics cool i'll go to the pharmacy for you no problem you know like i, I a lot of people think that all doulas are just home births and homeopathy and we never you know allow people to take medicine or anything like that and again it's that's just a, a false perception you know i'm a middle ground doula i am one that only wants what my clients want and that's all that matters in that instance so you know some people still do have um unfortunately negative experiences or or horrific experiences and they do have a doula i don't want it to be perceived as this cure-all but obviously if you're wanting a doula because you want somebody who's consistent along your journey. Cause a lot of the time we're seeing different professionals every time we go to different appointments. Yeah. And particularly if you were on a, like a high risk pathway, I felt like I was never out of that hospital every week. I had an appointment for something. And so to have an anchor, a point of contact that I didn't have to explain every single appointment to every other appointment, because you end up having to explain Previous appointments that you've had, or underlying conditions, or your yourself, your emotions—you have to justify and explain who you are every time. That that's exhausting, and so to have somebody who was an anchor, who understood, and only exists to help me in finding out what I wanted to do, was was huge. It you it can't—it's incalculable. Yeah, it really is incalculable.
1: If you don't mind talking about your your first birth with Izzy. Mm-hmm two factors that you, you mentioned obviously the the fact that you're gay one of the reasons that it's so important to have this conversation with you is about the experience of same-sex couples mm. from risk factors through to the way they're treated but also you mentioned about your weight mm. did you feel you were being judged
0: yeah of course every single time like at the moment i'm waiting for my um gallbladder removal surgery this is by the by but it's just another good illustration point um and because it's so urgent because i've been suffering with these pain attacks that um you know tramadol doesn't touch um and though so the um basically i've been referred to like a private clinic but it's still on the nhs's books as it were which i'm obviously extraordinarily grateful um, that that could be done so quickly. But they rang me yesterday to say that your BMI is on the cusp and we may not be able to treat you here um, and that you will then have to go back on a mains waiting list because your weight is so high. Um, and I understand using that as a, a way marker when you take into consideration other factors of health. But for the, my weight alone to be the sole barrier to me having this treatment sooner rather than later for my physical mental health because anyone who lives with pain will tell you mm. one night of pain is about two three weeks for me to get over and to get back to where I was and of course with something like gallstones it repeats more frequently than you don't ever get enough reprieve or reprieve from from that pain or the lost sleep or the emotional impacts of that pain so for them to use my weight as the only barrier for me to have this treatment is I would uh, without taking, and they haven't even met me at this point. Right. So it wasn't as if they met me and my blood pressure is high and my blood count is off and I've got other things going on. They've literally taken my details. And as soon as I've given them my height and weight, They've said, no, we'll have to do more investigations as to whether you can be treated here. So people of, you know, fat folks or people in large bodies or plus size people, how I personally use the word fat because that's what I am. But whatever you use is cool with me. But for to have BMI be the sole point of cutoff for people who are fat mm. or in larger bodies is, is, is abhorrent. We have a similar thing with IBF or IUI for same-sex families. You know, if you've got a high BMI, won't be put onto the list. Same for gender confirmation surgeries. If you've got a high BMI, you can't be referred. So BMI is being used as this all singing, all dancing oracle of health. And it's not, it can be used obviously as a as a as a consideration in a wider view of health, but to be used as the only reason to deny my treatment is is hugely discriminatory in my opinion knowing that my blood pressure is fine and my blood work has come back clear and everything else as well apart from that my my BMI is it's not even over actually the cutoff's 45 and my BMI is 44.7 so they're saying even though I'm not even over but I'm close to it is enough to discredit me from treatment.
1: Wow that's that's absolutely shocking I was witness to my mum having gallstones and yeah we had to call an ambulance she was in so much pain she said it was worse than labour
0: it was it's definitely I took myself off to A&E one night because I just they they'd always said to me the pain becomes unmanageable present yourself to A&E and I had three nights of this pain and it was getting worse and worse and on the third night eventually I thought um I'm gonna do something that is you know, I, I didn't I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat, I couldn't do anything, I couldn't even lift my children at that point because I was so exhausted from the pain and the emotional impacts of that. And so I presented to A&E but obviously all they say is that you've got to wait for the Gallstones Clinic. There's nothing that we can do for you. So it feels like a waste of precious NHS resources to keep presenting myself there. But I'd definitely give birth again <laughs> rather than have another attack <laughs> of Gallstones. And I don't say that flippantly because. You know, I I see people do that all the time and I know how incredibly um, wrought with physical and emotional upheaval that that process is. But, um, yeah, people with uh, heightened BMIs or fat folks or, you know, plus size people are treated extraordinarily different in the maternity system like water birth. Um, and things like that, and IVF treatment and access to IUI or sperm donation is all hugely um, gatekept by, by BMI in a lot of instances.
1: That's it's absolutely appalling. And one of the reasons that I wanted to speak to you specifically was to gain a better understanding of what it's like for same-sex parents to have children and how they're treated by by society and you know because i'm I, w- I want every single parent to feel seen and heard and i i know for a fact that adoptive parents can get postnatal depression gay dads can get postnatal depression you know same sex partners the, the birthing partner can feel very differently to the person who mm-hmm. isn't the birthing partner but they're also a parent but they may not be seen yes as legitimately as a parent as they would be if they were yeah and a hetero couple so so yeah can you can you tell me about your experience so ju- for transparency I'm not in a same-sex
0: relationship birth. so I can't tell you from a first person point of view what it's like to go through those systems as a uh, one half or one part of a same-sex family I obviously have done uh, extensive reading and and working with people that have been through those systems and I've also worked with those people as they've gone through as a doula um, but from my individual point of view I didn't go through the maternity or perinatal system as a same-sex couple or family so it, like individually I can't speak about that but I can use the queer birth club and the platform that I've got to highlight some of the common difficulties that same sex families do experience and what they share with me and obviously what they've given consent for me to share with people. But the difficult thing for a lot of people with same sex families is because there's no funding there's no statistics. So for a lot of things to be done or to be changed or to be amended or updated or challenged, you need funding and to get that you need the statistics but because we haven't got the funding to get the statistics we haven't got the statistics which means we can't get the funding and you end up in this loop of We know that same-sex families are being treated differently to heterosexual families, but we know that. There are, um, I think, three separate campaigns at the moment, people bringing that to the NHS's attention, and people obviously now moving to take legal action against what they perceive to be discriminatory treatment, which is if you went in... Say you had a a cis woman called Chloe, um, and she goes into uh, a clinic and says, um, I want IVF or IUI. If Chloe has a cis male partner they may be given access to that clinic immediately Um, obviously nothing's immediate with the NHS but with, (laughs) with, with little barrier because of their sexuality they may be given treatment but if Chloe's partner is another cis woman called Anna all of a sudden that trust can decide not to treat them at all and it's not because of their sexuality. It's because they're saying, because you don't have sperm between you, this isn't considered a fertility issue. So therefore, we're not here to fix anything. There's nothing to be fixed. Um, so we don't fund IVF or IUI of sperm donation for same-sex families. Now, that varies across the whole of the UK. In some trusts, you have to pay self-fund for up to 12 attempts at IUI, into uterine insemination. And in some trusts, you have to pay for free. In some trusts, you have to pay for one round of IVF independently before you'll get onto the NHS thing. And so it's postcode lottery, which I hear you is a thing across many, many disciplines and many, many different areas of the NHS and healthcare that people need. Um, But where I come down on it is that surely your sexuality or who you're choosing to have a baby with shouldn't limit the choices or the funding that you're given as an individual that that to me is the point where it no longer makes sense that just because the same woman is seeking treatment but if she had a different partner she could get treatment but because she has the same sex partner she can't that to me is where that comes down as nobody's understanding the difference here. And I end up wanting to bang my head against the brick wall. Um, but there, there's many campaigns um, and people that are working towards changing that specifically for same-sex couples, lesbians, bisexual women and folks, um, namely like LGBT mummies tribe on Instagram. They're doing huge amounts of work with the NHS to try and get that changed or just to have a constant uh, pathway for funding. Because at the moment, if you're in one trust, but you go 20 minutes up the road, you could be given completely different treatment and funding than Uh, you know at your local trust and so it's forcing LGBT families um, to have to do a lot more consideration and and paperwork and background and admin to try to to see where they should have their children and at at that time people's efforts should be where would be best for us to have our children not where should we have to travel to in order to get funding that a heterosexual couple in our area would get that again seems to be a disproportionately affecting LGBT families at the moment.
1: I I think this is so important to talk about and there seems to be such a lack of appreciation for the extra stress this puts on couples and families and I think it's it's also sort of really important to look at what happens you know if the couple's able to conceive then how they're treated by the system Mm. going forward and even just in terms of the language that's used whether the partner the non-birth partner is perceived as legitimately as a parent as yeah they would be if they were in a hetero or cis couple
0: yeah so for non-gestational mothers or parents like we know we know some very small statistics in terms of like perinatal mental health outcome namely um, Dr Murray Greenfield at King's College London they're also a doula. Uh, at Research doula I believe is their at for for socials and stuff. Um, but some of the research that they've been doing is focusing on perinatal mental health outcomes for LGBTQ plus folks um, and non gestational mothers and the invisibility, really, of non gestational mothers. For example, if you've got a, a non gestational mum who. May want to relactate or induce lactation to feed her baby, um, at either alongside the gestational parent or without the gestational parent being involved in that feeding dynamic. Um, that non gestational mother, because she's not a patient or she's not the, the biological or the birth mom of that baby, is outside of the scope of care. So actually isn't on the NHS system as a patient or a or or a parent to that child. So trying to access things like tongue tie clinics um, or feeding clinics or uh, even to ring like the infant feeding midwife, you know, there's there's the barriers um, in how mums are like you say, legitimately doesn't sound like the right word, but it's also kind Mm. of the best one I've got right now um, to see as legitimate full parents. Um, and that has an impact on the peri- perinatal mental health, not just of the non-gestational mother, but of the gestational mother or parent as well. So it's 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 further reaching than just feeling a little bit butthurt because you're left out. It's actually having impacts on on people's parenting journeys and their mental health. Um so it needs, it needs to be changed.
1: And just language can make such a difference as well, in terms of how people are are spoken to would you say? It
0: can do, you know, a common, a common concern from like same-sex families might be things being asked of them, like, well, who's the real mum? No, who's the actual mum? No, no, not, not, I need the the, the you know the the real mum and things are said to same-sex families every day um, and you just want to say back well they're both the real mum of course they are um, what they might mean is gestational mum because yeah. that may impact care you know do you need a six-week check how are you feeling stitches you know incision whatever that's going to impact the care that, that that parent may need based on you know being gestational or non-gestational but it, it doesn't negate motherhood or parentage in any way shape or form I think you're You will find people who disagree with that. But and the majority of people, parentage isn't denoted by biology or by activity or method of birth or or giving birth at all. Uh, You know, for the majority of folks, we see it in in much, much more shades of grey than black and white. Either you gave birth Mm. and you're a mum or you didn't and therefore you're not. Um, So I think that. Understanding that although gestational parents and non-gestational parents may have different needs, They are parents and they still have the same needs in terms of support and access and love and even, you know, actual rights of children as well, not to get too far down into the rabbit hole that is birth certificates and parental orders and adoption papers for LGBTQ plus people. But to know that this illegitimate view is harmful, not just on a basis of I've been left out and I'm upset now in that it does real psychological harm in some instances and it's not
1: yeah yeah and that it's it's actually profound and Mm. uh the the research that dr murray greenfield is doing sounds incredibly important because it's as you say it's this invisibility and it's something that is only just now being focused on is is the invisibility Mm. of 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 fathers and how they feel and you know there's still so much work to be done and One thing that I found interesting when I first very first spoke to you was also about the fact that people in the LGBTQ plus community can also have other risk factors that might mean they're predisposed to suffering from mental health issues once they've had a child.
0: Yeah. So if you look at like the mind checklist for what like predisposes people to to experience negative perinatal mental health outcomes, things like being isolated, um, being in a lower social economic group, um, suffering with um you know already already experiencing negative mental health difficulties before pregnancy or before becoming a parent um and all these things if you and look at that checklist you can kind of line that up almost instantly with a lot of the increased risk that lgbtq plus people experience uh, before i talk about those things what i want to make indefinitely clear is it's not because lgbt people are broken or we are less than, or that it is something that we're predisposed to because of our makeup or our bodies or our biology. It's largely, and in whole, the way that the world treats us because we're LGBTQ. So if you look at the rates of LGBT people, particularly then if you go deeper and look at trans or non-binary folks, instances of being isolated, having no family or being cut off, those are higher in lgbt communities and it's higher even still if you just take the trans and non-binary community and then it's higher even still if you take black and brown trans folks and it's higher even still if you take black and brown uh trans folks you know who are sex workers or anything like that and again it's not because these people are broken or that we as a community are all damaged it's because of the way the world treats us because of who we are or who we love so I think you can't have conversations about perin- perinatal mental health outcomes for LGBTQ plus people without acknowledging that we are at an increased risk of experiencing neg- negative perinatal mental health outcomes. Before you even talk about how we're then asked, "But who's the real mum? But where's that child's dad? You know, aren't you worried about them growing up without a dad? You know, but your mum, you're, you, you don't have a mum. You have a boober, and there's all that institutionalised and social." input on top of that so but as as a basis if you look at what makes somebody more likely to experience perinatal mental health difficulties the LGBT community are already ticking a lot of those boxes before they've even begun and start to experience the disparities of treatment or terminology or being isolated or left alone or being completely illegitimized over their parentage so it's it's worth looking at that Beforehand, It obviously doesn't mean that every LGBTQ plus person is going to experience perinatal mental health difficulties. But if we're using the basis of what MIND is using to look out for who to be, keep an extra little eye on in the people that may need additional support, then the LGBT community should fall into that uh, pathway, if you like, um, if obviously if people want that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think this is incredibly important point that you're making just now. And you know, even as you say, the, the simple things that for a lot of families that experience perinatal distress, you know, one of the the common things is like lack of support network, mm-hmm. lack of people being there for them. And um, another thing that I remember you telling me, which I think is really interesting, is about the percentage rise with lesbian couples registering births. Yeah. And how that, that is on the increase. Yeah.
0: Uh, So again, that's Dr. Murray Greenfield from King's College London at uh, Research Doula. Their paper um, was looking at trends in LGBTQ plus parentage. And they the statistic is in the last 10 years, I think, off the top of my head, in the last 10 years, um, same sex parents of women registering babies has increased year on year by 15 to 20%. Um, so that means 15% more than last year, then take that number as a whole. And it's so it's like compounded interest. It's not just 15% more than that's 10 years huge. ago. It's, it's yeah. growing every year by, by, by 15 to 20%. So the interesting thing about that fact is that's astounding enough alone, right? And that's yeah. enough for some people to go, oh, okay, yeah, I better get prepared for caring for a same-sex family because it's increasing by... Fifteen to twenty percent year on year, but once you couple that with the understanding that that is just same-sex families registering, you then add another whole layer of LGBT parents that are registering babies that don't go into those statistics because there's no way currently that we are able to to inform anyone in our care or statisticians or anybody that we are LGBT. We've only just been asked on the census, and that's been going for two hundred years. So it's a long way off us being asked when we register our babies if they've got lgbt parents or not so but then when you look at the other statistics the other data emerging about lgbt people in the uk and across the world is more and more people are coming out every year um, and there's a thing called the kingsley report um and it basically they they last did it in 2015 where they asked different people to grade themselves basically in a in a scale of lgbtness so zero being completely uh completely heterosexual and six being completely homosexual. And I love the idea that at some point someone had to resist putting blaming homosexual from from section six um, (laughs) on that end of the spectrum. It just it always amuses me. Um, So they ask people to grade themselves and then they break down the data over, over age brackets and over demographic and stuff like that. And you see the amount of people identifying as something other than completely heterosexual just rising and rising and rising with every generation and so we've got to a point where there's 49 percent of 18 to 24 year olds aren't completely heterosexual so when we're talking about LGBT people as a minority we're not strictly that in in the 18 to 24 year old category again that was done in 2015 so those 18 to 24 year olds are now Six, seven years older? Are they roughly the median age of maternity service users? Probably roughly in some way, shape, or form. Um, so, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they will be in same-sex families, um, you know, in dyads or in in, in um in family structures that are two same-sex parents you know they could be a variety of ways that families and people exist but once people then make that connection okay so same-sex families registering babies 15 to 20 percent year on year more and more people are coming out every single year nearly half of 18 to 24 year olds in 2015 didn't consider themselves to be completely heterosexual and if we follow that trend we know that's going to keep going up and up and up and that's not because we're becoming more gay there's nothing in the water it's not making us more queer it's a combination of factors of social um, safety and rights for LGBT people I mean obviously we're living through an awful time for the rights of trans and non-binary people right now but the fact that we're more able to connect and more able to show people yeah you can Live your life and be an LGBT person because it wasn't even it was even just my upper generation, my parents ago that it was illegal. Uh, You know, homosexual sex was illegal when my parents were alive. You know, during their lifetime So it's not just because we're getting gayer (laughs) as the species evolves or anything like that. (laughs) We are safer and we see more of ourselves, and we are more able to connect as a global society and as an individual as a UK community as well so I think a lot of people need to be ready that you know LGBT parents aren't going to be these once in a blue moon situations anymore and even if they are once in a blue moon that doesn't mean that those parents are less deserving of informed and beautiful caring understanding support Um, but it's going to become more and more common um, and people people need to be ready for that really
1: yeah. Yeah. And do, do you know what? Everything you're saying, you know, it, it makes me feel quite emotional because I think even in our parents' generation, I have several friends whose parents have subsequently, after having their children and having heterosexual marriages, mm-hmm. announcing, you know, actually, this is who yeah. I am. It isn't because they've changed who they are. It's because society is is more accepting mm-hmm. of who they yeah, are. Yeah, to, to, and- definitely to an
0: that is an ex that is an extent of it you know it's not just because society is doing a great job of loving LGBT people because obviously that's not strictly true in all matters yeah, of the world there's still sometimes, a long way to go sometimes it's not the praise of society that has come along far enough to allow people to come out it's actually we should be denouncing the parts of society that made them hide in the first place. Um yeah. we should look at it in that route sometimes as well but I know like friends of my parents that have come out as well you know in after you know years and years of being in a heterosexual assumed marriage or whatever and it's it's a huge part of the lgbt community that's underfunded as well i did a I did a talk with nhs was it nhs england or it i was health watch or something and there was somebody there who was talking about lgbt provisions in care homes and i was like oh my god yes because old people exist and gay people exist and so of yeah. course there's old lgbtq plus people but because again um, particularly if someone of my generation growing up with a lack of elders um who are outwardly lgbt it it was hard to you know to foresee that being something that should come into consideration so i do have sympathy for people who are in the maternity system and then think oh yeah gay people exist we should probably do something about that because i've been there in other instances of 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 my life and of my learning um but yeah there's it's not It's not going to stop because if you look at the trends falling down and down and down every year, the amount of people that identify as a, as a zero, a complete and not a zero, not even a cheeky little one, you know, it's just becoming smaller and smaller with each generation. And that I think will continue to do so. And I can't wait for the census information. I think that that will a lot of people will have their heads a wobble because of the information that they have gonna show just how just how queer this this country really is the 15 to 20 percent statistic is lesbians registering babies or same-sex couples with women bisexual pansexual folks registering babies with two female parents um that's where we get the data from the 15 to 20 percent so once you then step back from that and say that alone is enough for a lot of people yeah. to say we need to make changes because this is an increasing demographic and they deserve our love and support um, and we need to do better by these service users. But then once you consider that that doesn't include bisexual or pansexual folks in a heterosexual assumed relationship, that also doesn't necessarily, though that 15 to 20% doesn't take into account any gender non-conforming, non-binary or gender fluid folks because there's no way of us to officially register our third or non-binary gender option with the government in any document. It also may not take into consideration any trans men who are birthing because currently the laws of the UK, the Fetalization and Embryo Attics Act, will state that anyone who gives birth is the mother. Um, so it's really only capturing a small portion of the LGBT community. So it's not LGBTQ plus births that are rising by 15 to 20% every year. What we know is same sex families registering babies is increasing 15 to 20% a year. So actually, if you were able to step back and to capture all of that data, it would be a lot bigger, but we can't. So we can only lead with the stat that we have, which is 15 to 20% year on year increase of same sex families registering babies.
1: Which is, it's not a minority. You know, that's (laughs) yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's not fifteen
0: to twenty percent of births are registered to a same-sex family, but it's fifteen to twenty percent increase year on year, and that's happening. That's happened consistently over a decade. So it's not a one-off trend. Where we suddenly allowed you know if you have countries where they allow um same-sex families to register babies now like they've had a new law introduced and this is now able obviously you have a spike because you're having people who have had families but are now able to register them but the fact that this is growing increasingly 15 to 20 percent year on year shows that it's not a one-off it's not it's not because of any other circumstances it's because lgbtq plus people have babies yeah. And that needs to be
1: captured, that data. Just deal so we, with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I'm done. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> um, if we could just finally just uh, talk about, if you're happy to, your experience with the early days with Izzy, because obviously you were saying you had a much happier and calmer experience when you had your home birth with yeah. Emma. But with Izzy, you know, you weren't allowed that skin on skin contact really early on. I mean, did that affect your your mental well-being going into parenthood?
0: Oh, hugely. Again, like I said before, I really felt throughout that process that my body didn't work because it was fat, it was queer, it was whatever reason they were giving me at that time. Like, you can't, you can't have a water birth because we have to get a winch to lift you out of a pool, you know, and all these oh different things that were being were restricting my choices down and down and down um and you know having to go every week and be scanned and do blood tests and have and you know repeat all of these things and even though they're saying it's fine they're still getting you to come back in because your body's fat and broken and it's not going to work and your baby's you know and all of these horrid things that they they really scare you with um you know and they really had me believing that I couldn't my body would do it and it couldn't and it wouldn't and it and it would end badly. And so I think that, again, not being able to hold my baby for like 20 minutes, like I still think about that and like they're, they're, they're going to be 10 this year. And I still think of what was the reason why I couldn't hold them mm. at that moment, you know? And, um, but... Did you have a debrief? I didn't because at that point, I just, every time I took her to like, to took them to be weighed, Or to the health visitor clinic. Um, And then uh, Izzy's also autistic. And so then it went straight from like birth and me recovering from that into then they lost 14% of their birth weight and had to be readmitted to hospital. They had a tongue tie that was never, they never did anything with. And, you know, and I was bleeding and I had low milk supply because their tongue tie was so restrictive that they couldn't latch properly. And then so I almost feel like with Izzy, I just went from one. Battle to the next. So if we went from battle throughout pregnancy of being treated like this atomic bomb that could blow up at any minute. And then after birth, being treated as this body that can't produce enough milk because. Even they didn't even give me the out or the justification that because they're tongue tied, they're not able to stimulate the milk properly. So let's get that revolt. Let, let's get that yeah. rise. Let's do the body work. Let's get you a pump. Let's do all that thing. No, it was you need to be readmitted tube down the nose formula, poured down it after two days, the weights back up, go home, you know. So and then I went I went from that battle into speech and language therapy and into all of this. So I never felt I had a moment to sit and to breathe from that experience the only time I ever got that was after I had Emma and then I went into doula trainings and then you were asked tell me about your birth experiences because you need to you can't bring I can't bring my shit into someone else's birth so I need to deal with it I need to debrief it and it wasn't until I was in the company of other doulas and other birth workers and I spoke about these experiences and they went that's fucking awful you're right and then you go I'm not actually and I just put that away because I had to I had a baby now and I had to do that stuff um and the wonderful thing that I want to be really clear because I'm aware of when I talk about my birth experiences it always sounds like it was amazing and it was amazing and it was beautiful and it was exactly what I needed and nobody touched me and it was perfect it hasn't made me love or treat my children differently in fact i look at my experience with izzy and see see my strength and see that you can get through this together with love and it's not easy and it still hurts and that's okay and we'll heal together but if i hadn't have had that experience it wouldn't have driven me to have the experience i had with emma which wouldn't have driven me to be a doula and the whole universe kind of works out in a way and actually izzy as a person Uh, that they're nearly 10 and they show me who they are every day and I love it and sometimes it's frustrating because who they are is very much like me and that's like (laughs) butting heads but who they are is an incredibly driven and pragmatic person who just takes no prisoners and I'm just overjoyed by them as a human being and what they've given to me and what they've done and that really meant that we had such a connection in those infancy days because I was like oh, everyone else is, is is treating me like a bomb but you're not you want me because I'm your bubba and I'm your parent and that's what you want and so I always feel nervous and talking about the differences between my two children's experiences because I don't want anyone to think that that has led to any discrepancies in love or, or bonding or behavior because for us it didn't some people it does and that doesn't necessarily mean they're bad parents or bad children or bad babies it just meant that that. Was re- reflecting back on it now as a whole was what I had to do to to be where I am in some ways. And some days that helps, and some days it doesn't. And I sh- nobody should have to have those experiences to learn and do better. But um, Emma's just an entirely different person <laughs> as well. You know, they're just chalk and cheese, and their experiences were chalk and cheese, and and that's okay. And if I can help anybody change that narrative for themselves as well, then I'm very lucky to be able to be even the smallest part of that journey for them.
1: You've made me cry. <laughs> oh bless you, Vicky. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well no, you and know when anybody, morning cry. <laughs> anybody that listens regularly can can tell that I, I get sort of more and more snuffly as the conversation goes on. But my goodness that was just so beautiful. Like and and so yeah so very moving and it what you're saying also echoes what a lot of the other parents i've spoken to have said for anybody that may be struggling with their feelings towards their their baby in the early days you know it's a it's not your fault and b Mm. those feelings will absolutely come and it won't affect how you and they are going to go forward in in a loving relationship in the future yeah
0: no i mean it does they are they are chalk and cheese my two and obviously birthing experiences do do impact the perinatal periods you know we do know the research surrounding that and we know it does have an impact but i think they're also just completely chalk and cheese like emma my favorite thing about emma is that they always enter a room with the stage presence of a drag queen coming onto its reigning men and I so that is it. like the door flips open <laughs> and it is like Emma I am here I am back from school and that is one of my favorite things about them and that's how they entered the world you know they just I had three bear down contractions and they were in the water and then wow. I picked them up out of the water and they screen their lungs out you know and that is how Emma still enters rooms to this day and Izzy's more like I'm going to put my head in who's in here I don't know if I want to talk to you I'm going to poke back out again and that's similar to how you know to their birthing experience as well so I I wonder if that contributes and how much that contributes but there's still these individuals that are so different and their 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 conceptions were different their pregnancies were different their births were different Um, and maybe they were always destined to be different or maybe this is a part of some big universal plan of why they are the the way that they are and who they are is bloody incredible human beings and I'm lucky just to sit next to and watching Kanto for the fourth time this week
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh it's been so wonderful chatting to you this morning and uh just as a final note, please can you share uh, your flapjack recipe with everybody? Because it sounds incredible.
0: I save recipe. I'm more <laughs> of a throw it in until it looks the right consistency kind of cook. Um, but it's I use whole road, uh, whole rolled porridge oats, so the big chunky ones. I don't like your ready bricks. Yeah, I like. If I'm having porridge, like meat, I want to yeah. have porridge. Um, and I always use oat milk. Um, again, some people prefer to soak their oats overnight and rather than using oat milk, but any milk you like is fine. Um, about equal parts. Oh no, I'm not making porridge, am I? I'm making flapjacks. I'm giving, I'm giving you, I'm giving you my
1: porridge recipe. This is all good. I think we're going to move into the the Blue Mum Days Recipe Club. I think this (laughs) is the way way forward. That would be good. Yeah. So for porridge, equal parts, oats and milk, slow
0: simmer. And I uh, add cinnamon, um, oh, and probably a little bit of honey after it's cooked some people obviously add fruit at this point I like to wait until it's about a minute from done and grate an apple into it because you still get that burst of flavor and texture and everything and apple and cinnamon just a match made in heaven yeah And, Yeah. um, and a bit of honey over the top and if I've got you know flaked almonds or anything like that in the in the cupboard I'll put them in but the flapjacks again is honey porridge grated apple raisins cinnamon um butter um but I, again
1: i don't know specific measurements because i just chuck it in i think just the grated apple is just like a stroke of genius i'm definitely trying that so anyway thank you so much aj it's been such a joy to speak to you today if you enjoy this episode of blue mum days please rate and subscribe It only takes a minute, but it genuinely makes a difference to how many people can find it, which means helping more parents in need. Thank you.